Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano De Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. What's it like talking to Yoda? What's it like talking to someone who really, really knows his stuff, who can offer wisdom that transcends individual contexts and applies right across Planet David Price. If there is a Yoda in education, it's David Price. It's somebody who really, really knows his stuff, who goes across all sorts of cultures, all sorts of places, with experience that goes deep, deep back into his past, but then so many different pasts in and around that. If we're going to talk about the way in which we can connect each other through the power of us to this new world environment that we want to explore on the Game Changers podcast, there's no one better than David Price to talk to around the way in which the whole ecosystem can work. I'm really excited. I can't wait. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our series premium sponsor? Thanks, Adriano. Of course. We are delighted to be partnering with the team at Open Parachute. If you want to teach mental health to your students, but you don't have time to become an expert, Open Parachute can help. Learn more at openparachute.com.au. Bill, it is awesome to be with you again, or should I be calling you Obi-Wan? I'm not really sure about what's happening here tonight, uh, but I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. And, and I would imagine that there are so many people that walk the streets of Fitzroy that probably could be characters of a Star Wars trilogy. Look, you know, yeah, that is in fact correct. I think probably more characters out of the Mandalorian um, uh, TV series because they've got that sort of, just that sort of uh, slightly fey world weariness about them. But somebody who doesn't have world weariness is David Price, Adriano. <laughs> yes, we better get to our guest, David. It's awesome to have you with us uh, here on, on The Game Changers in, in our series six. Quite remarkable that we're in this particular place. I'm going to start with uh, the standard stock standard question that we, we ask all of our guests, and that is tell us a little bit about your story and how you have gotten to where you are today. Oh, happy am I to hear <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah, I, some of my friends do call me the Geordie Yoda because of the, the language that I speak up north. But I, I am actually Obi-Wan. My friend, Ken, who lives in Ascot Vale, um, who just takes the mickey out of me relentlessly, because of the OBE, he just calls me Obi-Wan. And so you can, you can call me either Star Wars character, I don't mind. Um, as long as it's not Darth that. Vader. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I'll do another impersonation if you want. <laughs> now, th listen, thanks for having me on. Um, what was your question again? Well, it was basically, just tell us a little bit about your story and, and how you've gotten to where you are today. Oh, God, okay. I'll give you the short version because there is a very long version. So I was born in the northeast of England, um, very deprived area, not uh, playing my fiddle or anything. It was just, it was in the in the seventies, massive high unemployment. And if you had any sense, you wanted to get out of Jarrow. Jarrow, the town that I was born in, was only famous for one thing, which was um, all the men decided to march to London when unemployment was ninety five percent. If you can believe that, 
So it's it's always known as the town you want to get away from. And that's what I did. Uh, I, I hated pretty much every day at school. Um, I went to a, a Catholic grammar school where they used to literally beat Latin into you on a daily basis. A Latin teacher had this big thick leather strap and I, I just spent the whole time in, in mortal fear. Bullying was just rife, hated it. Uh, walked away from that school and thought, well, that's that's me done with education. Never, I, I left when I was 16, didn't want to go to college, didn't want anything to do with education. And, and all I wanted to be was a musician, but I, I didn't know how you could do that. Um, had a cousin who um, ended up being in a group called The Animals, who at that time when I left school had had got a big hit with House of Rising Sun. Yeah. Um, and I just thought, if he can do it, man, so, so can I. So started uh, getting, you know, gigs as a musician. That went on, gradually built it up. Went on for about 15 years, made no money, but had a ball. Um, and then a friend of mine said, did you ever think about going back to college? And I thought, no, why would I want to do that? Um, but I, I ended up doing it. I was at a loss for something to do. I thought being in a band isn't really a job for a grown up anymore. Um, and, and I absolutely loved it um, and, and fell into a number of roles within education. I started off in community education. Um, drifted into adult education and then into what you would call TAFE. And I worked in a, a, a TAFE college for about f- five, six years. And then the last proper job I had before I went back to being a freelancer um, was to help establish the Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts, which is where I came to meet Ken Robinson, because Ken was our chief external examiner. And of course, the school uh, patron was Paul McCartney. So worked a little uh-huh. bit with him setting up the curriculum. And then um, in 2001, I decided I, I, I wasn't really an institutional kind of person. So it took me a long time to realize that. But um, I, I, I started doing freelance work in, in leading innovation in education projects and pretty much have done that um, ever since. It's interesting you, you, you said that perhaps being in a band is not for a grown-up, but then you meet Sir Paul McCartney and, and of course, we let's throw in Mick Jagger and those likes. I'm sure they're, they're probably thinking that their band life has just been glorious their whole career. Well, the, the, the funny thing was the only job I could ever have gotten in higher education uh, was at the Liverpool Institute because Paul McCartney had... I was about the fourth person appointed... And up to that point, there'd be no one who had a kind of performing arts background. And so he wasn't interested that I didn't have a PhD or even an MA. He just said, oh, you used to be in a band. And then we chatted for a bit about, you know, our Alan and, and the animals. Um, and, and I'm convinced that's that's how I got that job. It was because of the, the musical background, even though, you know, I was a very average musician. But I, I always... I knew how to get work, you know, and I, I talk about this a lot with, with teachers that our, our young people are going to have to be entrepreneurial. They're going to have to, most of them are going to have to f- find and make their own work. And that's, that's kind of what it was like being a musician. It wasn't, it wasn't who was the most talented. It was who could, who could just, who could get the gig. I get, I get a sense that along this personal journey of discovery that you've uh, embarked upon throughout your life and, and, and you've had so many encounters that are very diverse, I want to now shift the conversation to this, this, the construct of the power of us. I often talk to uh, my students over the years around that we are the sum of all of our experiences and all of our parts. 
and that when we have opportunities to immerse ourselves in, in our local, our regional, our global contexts, uh, if we're so privileged to do so, we gain so much from those experiences, not only discovering ourselves, but of course, place and, and the other. What motivated you to write a book that is about how we'll ultimately work, live, learn and lead in a future that many can't even see? It's a great question. Um, again, I'll give you the short version of it. I, I'd written uh, Open, which came out at the end of 2013. And, and really, I wrote that in response to what I was seeing from my two sons and the world that they were living in. And it was so different to the world that I'd grown up in. Uh, and it was, you know, tech-centered. They had two completely separate lives. One was the, the stuff they did in school, which they considered to be really boring. And then there was the really exciting stuff that they did when they were in the bedroom, on their laptops, I should say. Um, That's but, probably, but, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes they should make that Thanks clear. for the clarification, Phil. <laughs> so then um, that came out and, and you know, it was, that was largely about the, this opening up of knowledge and the way that uh, I, I, it isn't just restricted this, to social media, but what I was seeing was even in the face-to-face context, people were self-organizing in order to learn. And, and that's mm-hmm. a pretty powerful concept. You know, the, the 50,000 groups a week around the world on meetup.com who get together every week and talk about whatever they're passionate about. So it isn't just, uh, you know, about Twitter and Facebook. Mm-hmm. But in the, in the intervening kind of uh, four or five years from, from Open being published, I started seeing what I thought was the, the next step beyond. And the way I describe it in the book is, first, we share, shared what we knew, and then we shared what we owned. And, of course, the circular economy came about, you know, Airbnb, Uber, all of those things. But I, I was starting to see what I thought was a pattern emerge, which was around sharing what we make. And, you know, whether that was maker spaces or fab labs uh, or, or any of those kinds of gatherings of people, it seemed to me that there was a whole pattern which was emerging, which, which hadn't been remarked upon. In the book, I talk about Steve Flowers from University of Kent, who describes it as the, the hidden industrial revolution, but it's, it's actually hidden in plain sight. Once you see it, you kind of, you know, you see it everywhere. But, but I still didn't know if there was a coherent kind of theory there. So I, uh, I was asked to speak at South by Southwest, which is an impossibly cool kind of um, Edinburgh festival for ideas in Austin, in Texas. And I did this talk, which was called um, something like, say hello to your new best friend, people-powered innovation. But that was literally all, all I had. And I, I put together these ideas thinking, well, nobody will turn up. Anyway, so it doesn't really matter. And they booked me in this room, which was going to hold about 500 people. And, and about 10 minutes before I was due to speak, there was no, I mean, literally no one there. And I turned to my wife and said, listen, if 10 people turn up, I'm going to turn this into a book. And, uh, and it, it was full. It, it filled up in about five minutes. It was crazy. Um, and I said to people there, listen, I, I'm going to share some ideas. If, if any of it resonates, stay behind and let's talk about it. And about 120 people stayed behind and we, we had a chat. And people basically, you know, even though they were all way younger than me and impossibly cool and all working in Silicon Valley, they just said, you're onto something here. 
So then it was that I tried to define what it was. And whereas open was quite difficult to describe, uh, you know, to sum up the book in, in 90 seconds, with this one, it was easy because of what happened in March of last year. So once the pandemic broke and I saw this outpouring of what I call mass ingenuity, you know, thousand Facebook uh, groups, self-help groups uh, springing up overnight. And, and so when people said to me, so what's your book about? I said, you know, when that Mercedes Formula One team got together with University College London to, to create a new uh, continuous breathing machine in a hundred hours, it's that. And people immediately went, oh yeah, that's it. And, and it was, it, it, things just, everyone had a story to tell me. So Ken, the guy I was telling about Mascot Veil, when, when I explained it to him, he said, oh, you need to talk to um, Matt Bortelt. And I said, who's he? And he said, he's, he's out in um, Port Melbourne. And Matt runs this project called uh, 3D Freehands. And he was a classic example. So Matt is uh, designing and making prosthetic limbs for people who've lost them in mining uh, explosions. But what Matt now does is he he does, puts the designs out on the web and then gets people to make them themselves, gives them instructions as to how to make it. And people now are, are making these prosthetic limbs, which normally cost thousands of dollars. They're making them for like five, ten dollars each. So every week that goes by, there's an example of the power of us. And, and last week was no exception. The thing that happened with GameStop, you know, the Reddit people who, who decided mm. we're going to stick it to the hedge fund traders, that's the power of us. And we have to recognize it. As organizations, we have to recognize that there is a different mindset at play when people get together like that. It isn't the producer mindset. And when I talk to people in education, I say schools have got the producer mindset generally. We need to have the user innovator mindset. And, and you see the world in a completely different way. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because um, there's no doubt schools see learning and even curriculum as a product. They don't necessarily see it as, as this, this um, discovery of self you know, place and the other. You know, when, when I read read through your book, I, I walked away and my experience was around this kind of intersection that you're talking about of collaboration community with purpose and practice, but going beyond innovation or even human advancement as a product to something that's far more existential. And 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 I love how you've titled it The Power of Us because, you know, I, I often say that we're, we're just so much better together. And, and we exist because of each other. And, that, and I often use those phrases, you know, David, in, in times of real um, difference between people, particularly on race issues, you know, uh, where, where there seems to be a fraction where we really don't ever enter into the profound space of the other's story. There's so much to be gained from sitting in that space and giving yourself over to just simply listening to understand and not listening to respond to the power of that story. And so much I feel in, in that's so much of the power of your book. And I just want to say, you know, uh, thank you very much for having a, the courage to write it, but, but share something that takes us away from old definitions of capitalism in many ways, you know, to reframing it around a new tomorrow or a better normal that is inherently human and, 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 in, and in touch with, you know, the things that hopefully make us sustainable by being um, visitors on this planet. And, and I think you you hit the nail on the head there, Adriano. But when you when you said we we really need to 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 hear the other, 
because you know the first part of the book I, I chronicle things like Brexit and the rise of Trump and authoritarianism and and really we and I, I, I include myself in that kind of liberal left we should have seen that coming but we didn't we dismissed those those people who felt culturally left behind and and we made it impossible for them to have a voice and so what happens when you deprive people of a voice well eventually they lash out and yeah. and that's that's what brexit was you know people are now i think having daily reminders of what an absolute catastrophe brexit is turning out to be but it really wasn't about that. It was about people who felt like the world had moved on and no one had listened to them, just sticking two fingers up. And 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 we we never believed it could happen, just like we never believed Trump could happen. And guess what? You know, there'll be another Trump unless we find ways to listen and, and value the opinions of others. We might not agree with them, but we can't just dismiss them. David, I want to take you into a space if I can, and I don't know if it's appropriate to push back again, Tiada, but I, I, I just want to explore some of the stuff that you're talking about there because there are some things that you, you're talking about which represent a very radical reshaping of our expectations about what learning at school looks like. So if, if we go back to, I think your experience at school was very similar to my dad's experience, actually. He started at a similar school. And um, and he was he was so appalled by it. He got his act in, together and he won himself a scholarship to the local grammar school. And when he when he got in and escaped the school that he was in, he then spent five and a half years lying down on a cricket ground, marvelling at the fact that he was out. You know what I mean? It's it's. But the reality of that experience is that, and the experience of schooling for 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 most of its time during the during the period of public education. So let's say the last 150 years, because that's what we're really talking about in education, is public education, the last 150 years. It's a one size fits all. And everything that you're talking about in describing the power of us was the experience of those few kids who worked out how to go and do their own thing despite the system of school. And now we're talking about a system of school that empowers every one of those kids when we say it empowers every one of those kids, we have to mean that it empowers every one of them. And, you know, it's it's nice talking about the notion of the Elon Musks and the Richard Bransons of this world, you know, and of the Jeff Bezos's. And I, I note today at the same time that I note that um, Hilton Valentine from the Animals passed away on the, on, on the weekend and commiserations for a former colleague, idol, you know, contact of yours, um, you know, Jeff Bezos passed, you know, stands down from Amazon. You've got Elon Musk, who's wealthier than ever for running a car company that can't actually make cars on time, but it's making money by trading carbon credits in and around. We, we live in this funny world, don't we? Where we expect now every kid to be able to do the sort of thing that only a handful could do in the past, and that is to be genuinely entrepreneurial, to sell themselves. To con- how, do we, how do we do this? How do we turn education upside down and make something that was the province of some, the province of everybody. What, what does learning look like when we do that? Wow. Uh, I could fill the rest of the program with, with, with that response. But, but in short, I think the key to this lies in redefining what we mean by entrepreneurialism. Because for me, it isn't Jeff Bezos. It's the person who has a a problem in their community and they find a way around it. Now, any of us could could be that person. Uh, 
Uh, I, 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 I'm a regular contributor to a, um, a Canadian radio program run by educators, a guy called Stephen Hurley. It's a terrific program. And this week, his theme all week has been, if there was to be a royal commission, what should the driving questions be around the kind of education that we want to see going forward? And he asked me directly that question. And I said, well, it should be the question that I, I end up with in the book, which is, how shall we live? And, and I believe that's what education should be trying to do, is to help young people work out what a good life looks like. And, and we've got a, a, an absolute gilt-edged opportunity, it seems to me, you know, through the, the awful context of COVID. You know, certainly in this country, we've seen whole communities decimated. We've seen families you know, torn apart. It's been horrible. But somehow, someone has got to find a way to put that together again. And it's no good looking to Boris Johnson to do that. We, we have to do that ourselves. And this was already happening before COVID. So, you know, local libraries were being closed down, village pubs couldn't stay open, and groups of citizens were coming together and saying, well, how hard can it be? Surely we can do that. So when I talk about Enterprise, I'm talking really about social enterprise. And the great thing, it seems to me, is that around the world, there are kids that no one has heard of. I keep getting introduced to them because, you know, for whatever reason, people just kind of know that I'm going to be interested in their stories. But these kids are doing amazing things and they're not doing it because they want to make money. So Avi Schiffman, the kid who I start the book off with, well, the two, two young young men. There's Ryan Junso Hong in um, Seoul in Korea and Avi Schiffman who lives just outside Seattle. They both at the same time created COVID tracking websites when their own governments weren't able to do it. And these are 170 and the other's 19. They were both offered a fortune for these websites. In Avi's case, because I, I, I spoke with him, he, he, he was offered $8 million and he said, I don't want any money. He said, if, if I do that, it'll, it'll get turned into something else. He said, what would I do with $8 million? I don't want a big yacht and live in the Bahamas. And this is what drives a lot of our young people now. It's the desire to make the world a better place. And that everybody could be part of that process. Um, but in order to do that, we've got to recognize that education is no different to the rest of society right now. It's highly inequitable. And we saw that with the digital divide during the pandemic. We've got some young people who, you know, can't get access to a, a computer or the internet. Um, so it's, we're not all in this together. Um, some of us have had a better pandemic than, than others. And I think we've, we've got the opportunity now, it seems to me, uh, to, to have that discussion. And what, what worries me right now around the world is I see educators wanting to talk about what, what, how do we want the system to change? This is a great opportunity. How do we want assessment to change? Because we're going to have two years now in this country of no terminal exams, and yet the sky hasn't fallen in. Oh, no, so no, no, no. I'm sorry to cut in there, David. The entire yeah. purpose of English society it no longer exists. I mean, the whole of England exists <laughs> yes. as this exercise in sorting out which children will have privilege and which won't by means of examination. Are they going to cope? Exactly. There's going to be generations lost. <laughs> yep. But, 
but but I, what, what worries me is that I fear the exhaustion that that everybody's feeling, including uh, teachers, will drive us to just say, oh, you know what? Let's just get back to what it was. Everything else has changed in the world. Let's let's keep education just as it used to be, because we won't get another chance like this. There's something in there. I mean, we could talk about Finland, and you know, when when we talked to Parsi Salberg. Um, in one of the earlier series of, of the game changes and, you know, Parsi's, Parsi is Parsi, you know, he's a fantastic bloke, but he, you know, he's, you know, one of, one of his constant questions is, you know, he's got, uh, he's got a 15, 16 year old son and who's now in Australia because he's living in the greatest um, state in the world, Adriana, the great state of New South Wales. And don't say anything mm-hmm. because you know nothing. Parsi will sit there and say that his son at the age of 15, 16 has done half the amount of time at school in Finland that a student in, Australia has done or close, close to half of that. And yet the results aren't there. We're, we're wed to this idea that we have to have kids doing more time in school. And then, and then we're wed to the idea that little tiny kids in early learning have got to have a structured curriculum around it because, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we, we cling to things. And some of those things should obviously, you just sit there and go, well, if we want people to be well, we can't have kids you know, working from seven till nine o'clock every day at school and doing schoolwork. That's just crazy. You know, 12, 14 hours of school and traveling is, it's not, it's a nonsense to wellness. All right. Now, if there's some stuff that's got to change and there's some stuff that's really compelling, what's the stuff that shouldn't change? What's the stuff that as we're going about reconstructing everything, what do we cling to? What do we hang on to? What's important? Wow. I'm struggling to think of what I would actually keep. Um, I, I, I'd keep the vocational aspect of being a teacher, but even then, I, I think, you know, governments around the world have made it a very unpopular job. It's not a job that you aspire to. It's interesting that you mentioned, Parsi, because one, uh, I remember I was, I was doing a conference in, in Perth and, and Parsi was speaking alongside me and we were chatting and I said, Parsi, what is it about the difference between Finland and England uh, and, and, and why you've done so well and we haven't. And he said, it's really simple. He said, in Finland, we agreed on the purpose of education about 70 years ago. And he said, it's not really changed. He said, every time you get a new government in England, you, you rerun that whole debate. But for, as you know, for the Finns, it was about creating more equitable society. Uh, and, and we're still a long, long way away from that. But I do think that what we've experienced in terms of top-down driven innovation. And, and my book is all about the, the reverse of that. It's about bottom up. And that starts with teachers. So the power of us needs to start within the teaching profession. One of the things that I'm most proud of in my current work is every three, well, it's three times a year, I do a thing at University College Dublin called the Enterprising Educators uh, course and it's for people you know it's an in-service program and because it's now in webinar form we, we get this international group now it's fantastic to see teachers all around the world coming together and what they have to do using design thinking is to come up with a new innovation that will solve a local problem that they've got and it, they are absolutely fired up about this and the first time I saw it happen and I saw the level of enthusiasm I thought, well, why is, why, why is this so meaningful to them? And I think it's because they feel such a lack of autonomy in, in their work. And, you know, we're starting to see things like in the US, there's the teacher-powered schools movement where, 
decisions are made in the classroom about what the classroom needs. So teachers are making decisions on who gets hired. Um, they're making decisions on budgets. And generally speaking, we, we know this from Daniel Pink's work, when people have got a sense of autonomy and agency about their lives, they, they are in a much better space. They will, they will perform better. They'll feel better about their lives. So if we want entrepreneurial, social and uh, entrepreneurial kids, it seems to me we have to start with, with the teaching profession as well. Let's pause for a moment to remind our listeners about the important work of Open Parachute for Wellness in Schools. You know your students are struggling with their mental health, but you're not a trained therapist. Open Parachute can help you. Learn more at openparachute.com.au. You know, this is, a, this is a really powerful conversation we're having here today, David, because our experience in the state of Victoria, the greatest state in the country, Philip, was one of in excess of 114 days of remote learning. We, we actually prefer, Phil and I prefer to call it continuous learning. We actually saw two things during that time. We witnessed school communities who we work with who simply needed support to manage a crisis. You know, or sorry, sorry, manage a response to a crisis. Then we saw other schools that we, we were privileged enough to work with who had the courage to lead through the crisis. And those that led through the crisis, the common denominator was the empathy construct, that they understood that people came first, the adults in, the, in their communities, and of course, the young people that they cared for. And when I mean adults, I didn't just mean that the teachers, I'm talking about their parents as well, many of which who'd lost jobs, who, um, who you know, during this, this crisis had to stay home and, and, and support their children. Uh, and, and some of them had no choice in that particular matter. Those schools that led through the crisis, what we are now beginning to witness in 2021 are some courageous learning communities here in Victoria in particular, who have now decided to build into their learning framework, particularly for more senior kind of students, greater autonomy with the use of time. And they have recognized that time is now totally fluid. They recognize that wellness came first, then they're recognising that time is fluid. And what they're actually building into their structure is opportunities for students to self-regulate their time throughout the day. And in addition to that, to also undertake some of their learning through an online kind of paradigm. Because what they did was every two weeks, they tested the pulse of their students to check their well-being. these, these constant check-ins to see where they're at. Now, of course, there were many that had anxiety that rose, but there were many that anxiety declined. There were, there were many who were normally anonymous in a classroom now felt very brave behind the, the anonymity behind a screen that, you know, that, that, you know and, and they could ask the question five times without having the social pressure of, of the school environment. But what also these schools realised was, of course, the power of community and why that was so significant. And that's probably why so many schools still exist today and the value that that brings. So I want to kind of touch upon the community element, this notion that schools are no longer operating exclusively in their local context, and that a sense of connectedness goes well beyond our ability to kind of just use the internet or latest technologies. And it goes to a point to help better prepare students to identify and confront problems that they care about and collaborate beyond the walls of their classroom. How can we ultimately build schools that understand not only their local context, but they're regional and global for a better world. Well, it seems to me we've we've got to rethink what a school is, and it's 
another one of those learning experiences that we've had has been when a school physically isn't open, does learning stop? Well, no, we've seen that it doesn't. Um, however, there is a great value to, to have a kind of focal point in the community. But I'd have to say that certainly from where I'm sitting, uh, and, and as you know, I've spent a lot of time in Australian schools, I, I, I think they've been the very opposite of that. They've been walled off. They've been little enclaves where the, the rest of the world isn't allowed in in too many schools of course there are some great schools you know natalie c's school in uh, at hilltop road in in sydney is just one of those great examples where natalie as a leader says her job is not just to educate the children it's to build the community and and what does that mean if you if you have that kind of commitment well it means that you run classes for parents as well as kids you, you ensure that the skills that the parents have got can be shared by all of the kids, not just their own children. You have, as she has, you have part of the, the school premises, which is set aside for adult learning. Now, no one gives her any credit or any money for doing this. She does it because it's the right thing to do. But if more schools were able to do that, and like I said, we have the opportunity now because of what's happened with the pandemic and going forward, obviously there's going to be a huge global recession. So if schools saw themselves as the restorers of community, then th there is never a shortage of really interesting learning opportunities within, within that context. You just have to, as, a, as an educator, you have to think, how can I design something which will actually benefit our local community and, and help bring that together? And one of the schools I talk about in the book is New Roads. And in many ways, uh, New Roads is, is the antithesis of what a lot of schools are about. It's very wealthy. It's independent. It's in Santa Monica in, in Los Angeles. You know, Steven Spielberg sent his kids there, film movie producers send their kids there, but they also have half of their kids are coming from places like Watts and Compton, the really deprived districts, and they have a, an incredibly diverse student body. Now, they took that decision as an independent school to, to rechannel that money to make sure that they got what, what they believe is a social experiment of what America could look like. What does a school like that produce? I'll tell you what it produces. It produces Amanda Gorman, because she went to that school. And Gosh. you you know, there's been all of this global attention on this young woman. And uh, sometimes I worry about how she's going to cope with it all. But you, you don't develop her talents by accident and the school hasn't been referred to enough but what new roads did is any visit that the new roads picks up on immediately is it gave her that sense of social justice it gave her that opportunity to be creative in her writing it gave her the opportunity to 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 work with her local community amanda's as much a political activist as she is a poet so so david so, so david on on, yeah. on listening to you say that i just i just want to clarify that in helping her to develop her sense of purpose this is not just about some sort of fulfillment of self it's about fulfillment of self and fulfillment of community and you and earning your place and service at the same time. Absolutely. And it's one of the deal, uh, part of the deal, if you sign up as a parent 
at New Road School is that you commit to being part of a community. You, you, you have to commit to getting involved in uh, events that they do. You have to commit to giving some time to, to supporting the school, not through money, but through time. And I know it's an unfashionable thing to say, but when you see schools like New Roads, you realize that as John Holt used to say all the time, schools are built on love. And, and it, it is unfashionable to use that word, but effectively, that's what we have to do with our, with our students is get them to, to well, you, we, we don't have to do that. They'll do it themselves if we give them the opportunity to, to know what it's like to be part of a community and to help others. We, we, we all know that we, we feel better about ourselves when we're helping others. I want to kind of interrogate this, 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 this thinking a little bit further, David, uh, from the construct of, of voice, because you, you touched upon that in mentioning Amanda and, and, and the profoundness of being seen and heard uh, and how transformational that really can be. You also touched upon Daniel Pink and, and so much of his work is around the construct of self-determination. You know, that, that there's an intrinsic motivation when we give over autonomy when we, when we uh, uh, develop our mastery, which is a lot of our competency, where our confidence comes from. And of course, the other construct of self-determination is, is relatedness, you know, our, our ability to connect um, and be relational and human. It's interesting that learner agency and self-determination in school communities may be the least discussed, yet the most important aspect of creating a fundamental change in, in, in the work of schools going forward. Is increased student agency really about expanding freedom or are some schools simply increasing choices? Some are, and I, I think they're missing what it's about. For me, it's about growing responsibility. So I remember about oh, probably four or five years ago when I visited Melbourne Girls Grammar when Catherine Misson was principal there, and she talked about the very thing you just mentioned, Adriana, which is, part of the, 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 the students' weekly timetable was, was essentially for the students to organize themselves. And some of them freaked out at that prospect. They'd been so used to being told, you have to be here at a particular time, that the idea of organizing their own time, as well as organizing their own learning, they, they couldn't cope with it. But as she said, they couldn't cope with it for the first term perhaps, but by, term three and term four, they're walking into classes and going, okay, I've got half an hour. So what are we going to be doing today? And really demanding a lot from the teachers. And, and that is what I mean about self-determined learning. It's, it's, it's the, the, this, the point that I think we all want to get to as educators, which is that the students are coming to us and, and they're picking our brains. We're not picking theirs, but they're picking our brains because they're in charge of their own learning. And that, that is a world away from where we've been, but I think we are moving towards it, not least because when they're not in school, these young people are doing this all the time in their, in their social lives. So that concept of self-determination, it seems to me, you're right, it's not talked about enough, but it, when it is talked about, it's, it's, it's dis defined as student voice. That's not what I mean by agency. Yeah. I mean, being more in control of your own life and the lives of your community and feeling that you can make a difference. 
David, on, on listening to you, I asked you a question a little bit earlier about what would you keep the same. And I, I think I'm, I'm developing an answer from what I'm listening to you, but it's, it's an interesting sort of answer. So bear with me a moment. When I hear you talk and when I hear you, everything about what you're, you're talking about, you're talking about respect, but you're not talking about that old notion of hierarchical respect. You're not talking about respect for position necessarily or respect for family or your family name or any of that sort of garbage. What you're talking about is respect for the learner and everything that you're talking about here and, and everything that I'm hearing and, and, that, and that we're listening to is about that deep consciousness of the learner and looking at the learner in their place, looking at the learner and, and the person that they are and, and, and where they're up to in the planet and, and, and what their purpose is and crafting everything around that. How do we help teachers to develop that deep consciousness of the learner and that, that deep respect for who they are and where they're going to and that, 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 that notion of service of them? One of my favourite uh, schools in the UK is XP School in Doncaster. Um, and, and if you ever want to get a, a real kind of maverick thinker on, on your programme, get Gwyn Harry on, who, who essentially founded the school. But, but they, they based it around Ron Berger's Expeditionary Learning Schools, whereby the driving concept of the school is crew. And, and Ron once put it to me really well when he said, what we say to all the students when they come to, a, to a, an expedition learning school is, your job is not to get into college. Your job is to get everybody else here into college. And it's true that if you want to, if you want to get respect, you have to give it. If you give responsibility, you will get responsible students. And, and that all comes down to, I think, a number of things. It, XP is a small scale school. I don't know how a student can feel known in a school of, you know, 1500 students. It's just impossible. I was in a very large grammar school and, and no, no one knew who I was. Nobody knew the life I was leading. Nobody, nobody knew what was going on at, at home. And so, so I think we have to have a, a human scale to it. But I think we also have to embrace this notion of crew and give time to it. So XP give, I think it's at least um, 15 minutes every day to crew, but they also have crew events where they're all coming together and they're just learning about one another. And they stick in the same group for six years. And that the impact that that has on the students is remarkable to see, but it's all driven by the leadership vision and XP has the best school motto that I've ever seen. And it's above all compassion. And that to me is, says it all. So you're right, Phil, I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about it in that context, but yes, it is about developing respect and, and that comes through compassion. I think you, you've also just built the case beautifully, David, for the power of vertical curriculums and vertical um, pastoral structures, because they are inherently about relationships and relationships occur through the speed of trust. You know, and uh, I, I was at a school for 12 years, uh, only, if, only, you know, 12 or so months ago, where I saw very quickly the power of that crew continuing along their journey together. And then what, what happened through organically was, of course, the senior members of the crew became uh, nurturers 
for the younger members of that crew. And it became this life cycle, you know, and, and the responsibility happened very naturally. Was there, was there uh, encouragement of that? Absolutely there was. But, but it also then had to be taken, you know. And what I witnessed were young men who really, who really took that responsibility and developed a deep consciousness, and you use the word compassion, for their fellow peer, uh, and, and, and it was marvellous to see. I was going to finish with a question around how you continue to see yourself evolving as a person, but I feel that this whole conversation has given us a, a really clear insight to that, and particularly your story at the very beginning. So I want to finish with this question instead. What's next? Against the context of unparalleled challenges and, and complexity uncertainty, how might we lead, learn, live, and work with fearless inquiry to face an unknown and turbulent future with hope and gratitude? Wow, that, that is the $64,000 question, I guess. What, what I keep coming back to is we need courageous leadership. We need, and I understand where it's come from. If you've spent 30 years as a school leader being told by the government what to do, then even when the shackles are taken off, you, in your head, you, you've still got the Stockholm Syndrome. You, you think you can't actually escape, you can't get out, and you can't do what you really think is right for your school. But what I think has been interesting about COVID and the response to it is that that head teachers have, have had that responsibility forced upon them. There's been a vacuum of decision-making. No one has been able to tell head teachers what to do. And some of them have, have risen to the challenge in remarkable ways, you know. I know some principals of schools not far from where I'm sitting right now who have seen it as their job to make sure that, you know, nobody goes hungry in the in the community. And so they've opened the school up to that. I, so I think this this idea that we we have a lot more freedom than we think we have needs needs to be drilled home. I would love to see more governments uh, loosen the, the 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 constraints on 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 leaders because I think they would fly. I, I really do. But ultimately it's going to come down to some courage and to say, you know what, school wasn't that great before this pandemic. So let's not go back to, to exactly how it was and let's see what we've learned from it. You know, just simple things. I think it's really important for communities they're suffering PTSD right now. And when this is all over, there's going to have to be a period of time where they just repair emotionally. They, they allow themselves time to talk about the loss, to talk about the impact that this pandemic's had upon their lives. And where better than, than school to do that? And, and when you do that, Natalie C. Tilltop Road put it beautifully one day when she said to me, you know, most of the time, it all starts with an ask. She said, but schools never ask the question, what can we do for you? They're always kind of on the receiving end of, of community generosity, but they don't say, what can we do in return? And well, I mean, not obviously some do, but I think that that idea of leaders saying, how can we help now going forward? Not just the students who are in our immediate charge, but their families and, and their communities, then we could come to a very different concept of, of what 
school should be about. Jeff Holt at the LIGA Leadership Academy says, we're very good as educators in scaffolding learning. And that's true, that we get trained to do that. We're less good at scaffolding experiences. And, and that's what shapes young people. It's, it's those experiences. And it seems to me that as a, as, a, as a leader now, we have to say, how can we scaffold the experience of, of restoring our community? And by the way, everybody will learn so much better if we do that. David Price, thank you so much for joining us on the Game Changers podcast today. It's, it's, just, it's just a privilege to share some time with you and to think about the things that we need to be doing. You know, as a history teacher, sandwiched between a muso and an artist, I feel as though <laughs> I'm learning every day and I'll keep learning. Um, keep doing what you're doing. Keep banging on about what you're banging on about because it has an impact. You know, it, yeah. it shapes thinking. It encourages people to search and to ask questions. And to, um, and, and to really connect. For all of our listeners out there, the power of us, the power of us, David Price, the power of us, go and buy it. You know, if you, if you, haven't, if you haven't had a good read of, of, of a book or you've got 15 books sitting on your pile, throw the pile away, buy that one because it's, it's, it's worth a go. Thanks so much, David. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Adriana. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.